Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to uh, John chapter 6. And if you're, you're new here, uh, what we do is we kind of work our way through books of the Bible, kind of go through them section by section. We've been in this series called Bread of Life, which is working through uh, the book of John. And we'll be in chapter 6, verses 16 through 21 this morning. On January 16, 2003, after being delayed 18 times, the Space Shuttle Columbia was launched from the Kennedy Space Center in Merritt, Florida. And for the first minute or so, everything looked fine. In fact, all eyes were on the launch, watching every aspect of this Space Shuttle take off. But only 82 seconds in, in less than a minute and a half, a piece of foam about the size of a family suitcase, broke off from the external tank and crashed against the spacecraft's left wing. Now, nothing happened immediately. Nothing tragic happened immediately. The vessel seemed to go unscathed by this mishap. However, unbeknownst to the crew on board, this created a 10-inch hole in one of the wing panels. Again, this, this piece of foam, which would allow hot gases to enter into the spacecraft. Well, nearly two weeks later, when the Columbia attempted to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, because of this pressure, because of what had happened through this uh, hole in the wing panel, the shuttle began to slowly break apart and ultimately uh, disintegrated, killing all seven astronauts on board. It was a terrible uh, tragedy that, uh, that most of you probably remember, and because we have folks in our church who, who worked for NASA at that time, maybe you have even different memory, a different perspective, different insights into what took place. Well, debris from the explosion, including some very large pieces of aluminum, metal, scattered over hundreds of squares of uh, square miles in the southeastern U.S., but incredibly, not one single person was hurt from all of the debris. One large piece shot into someone's backyard and actually went right through the middle of their kid's trampoline, but no one was on it, so no one was injured. The mother inside the house heard the loud noise, having no idea what it was, just yelled outside at the kids to keep it down out there. Um, there's all this debris scattered across hundreds of square miles, and yet incredibly, no one was hurt, no one was hit by any of it, no one was injured, no one even suffered a scratch because of it, which prompted many people to call this a miracle. It's a miracle that that people were unscathed by all of this debris. How could it be that all of these pieces of metal and aluminum, not one person was harmed? Of course, some would argue, and taking a more mathematical approach, that this was not at all a miracle. In fact, when you consider all of the, uh, the square miles of the earth, that the earth is, mostly, is covered mostly by water and uninhabited, this was not a miracle. Such is the case with the claims of miraculous. You know, sometimes... Uh, we hear people talk about miracles, and maybe we are a bit skeptical, or uh, some people label things that are fairly mundane as miracles. We, we find a parking spot in a very busy, uh, a crowded uh, a shopping mall, and we say, it's a miracle. How can we end up so close to the door? We, we have something go our way. Maybe we, we, we're driving along, we see a collision that happened just moments before we got there, and we end up uh, avoiding. We say, that was a miracle. We see someone healed by chemotherapy and it shrinks a tumor. We call it a miracle. One person's scientific explanation is another person's miracle. 
But clearly, there are some things that can only be explained as a divine act of God. Sometimes we see people, we hear about people, maybe you know, I heard this just last week, someone told me a story about someone who was healed when all the doctors said, there's no hope. It's impossible. This person will not get better. And yet incredibly, miraculously, the person started to improve and eventually was released. Uh, two people have, who have hated each other, I mean, just absolutely hated each other for decades. They decided almost the exact same moment to approach the other person and seek forgiveness. There's some things that have no other explanation than something supernatural just happened. Something miraculous took place. Well, this morning we're going to read about an action of Jesus that, again, can have no other explanation than this was a divine miracle of God. Our task, of course, when we see these, we read the miracles, is to to try to understand faithfully, keeping the text in the context, try to make sense of what is God teaching us through this account? What, What does God want us to learn? What is He showing us about Himself? What is He telling us, teaching us through this miracle. And of course, when we see the miracles, the gospel writers are revealing to us the power of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. But that's not the extent of what each miracle teaches us. So I believe as we look at Jesus walking in water, we're going to see three things this morning. The way Jesus comes to us, the way that we come to Jesus, and the completeness of of Christ's salvation. So the way that Jesus comes to us, the way that we come to Jesus and the completeness of Christ's salvation. Look with me, if you would, at John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. The Word of God reads this way. When evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So Jesus has, we saw from last week, he just disappeared into the mountain. Uh, to avoid being taken captive, physically taken captive by this huge crowd. He feeds this crowd of probably 15,000 people, 5,000 men, an additional maybe 10,000 women and children. He feeds them, and they're so enamored by Jesus, they're so impressed by him, they try to take him in as their king, physically. They say, this is the king we've been waiting for. This is finally the one who will redeem us, who will rescue us from Rome's tyranny. And Jesus, recognizing that it was not his time, he withdrew, he got away, and he sent his disciples off in a boat, and his disciples are struggling uh, without him. After rowing for hours, they had gotten a little more than halfway across the Sea of Galilee. They'd gone three or four miles, miles, we're told, but because the sea became so rough, they they just weren't making any real progress. I mentioned to you that we went on vacation, spent some time at the Gulf, we were able to get uh, get in some kayaks and do some kayaking uh, in the bay. And, and it's hard enough to, to, to row for an extended amount of time, even if the wind is behind you, right? It's still exhausting. But if, the, if you have a strong wind in your face, 
you row and, and you paddle and you don't get anywhere. And this is what was happening to uh, the disciples. They're going from the northeast to the north, northwest shore, which was not the widest part of the Sea of Galilee. Here's, here's what it looked like. Let me show you a map of the Sea of Galilee, give you an idea of where they were going. So as you can see from the map, they're kind of cutting the corner here, from, again, from the northeast to the northwest, um, which, again, was not nearly the longest uh, path across the lake. And on a normal day, it would have taken the disciples maybe four hours to get across this particular section of the lake. But here they start out at around 8 p.m. When evening came, John tells us, it was dark. And so it's 8 p.m. They row, 9 o'clock rolls around, and then 10 o'clock, and then 11 o'clock, and midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. This is what one of the other gospel writers tells us. It was right about that time. It's 3 in the morning. They're rowing. The storm continues to rage. And after eight or nine grueling hours, you can imagine how they were feeling. They were stuck in a boat on, on the sea. They're dirty. They're drenched because of the water splashing on them. They're exhausted. They're probably bickering back and forth with each other. You know, one frustrated that another's not rowing hard enough. They're going through all of those things that, that you go through when you're enclosed in that short, that small amount of space with someone. You're struggling. They're probably at a point of exhaustion where, you know, you have to start to have these strange ideas and thoughts of, of giving up. And then they look out over the dark waves and they see Jesus. But they don't know it's Jesus. They don't know it's him. They think what they're seeing is a ghost and they're, they're scared to death. They're scared to death. And we can hardly blame them, really. I mean, they left without Jesus. They left in a boat without Jesus. They've been rowing for eight or nine hours. Why would they expect to see Jesus? I mean, people just don't walk on water to get places. Now, there were a few Greek mythological folks who were said to have walked on water, these, these uh, so-called Greek gods. One of them was the son of Poseidon. Uh, his name was Orion, and he was said to have the ability to walk on water. Another one was uh, Pythagoras, whom you may you may remember that name from your days in geometry and the Pythagorean theorem, but there was another god by the name of Pythagoras who, who was said to have the ability to walk on water. But, but these, were, these were Jewish disciples of Jesus who were monotheistic. They didn't believe in all of this Greek mythology. They didn't believe in the Greek gods. And besides that, no one had ever seen anyone walk on water. No one had ever said, hey, I was out on the lake and I saw someone come to me on water. It had never been seen so we can hardly blame the disciples for being afraid. They look out, and coming toward them is Jesus. Again, they're exhausted. They're probably not in a place where they're even willing to trust their eyes at this point. Matthew tells us that Peter asked to get out and walk on the water. But all in all, they're absolutely at their wit's end. And this is where Jesus meets them. Now, what do we see about the way Jesus comes to us from this passage? Here's our first point. Rather than disappearing during our dark times, Jesus meets us there with comforting power. It's not uncommon. In fact, I guess it's very normal for someone, for us to ask, perhaps in, in a really dark time, God... Where are you? In fact, the psalmist even asked that question. 
He says, God, why, why are you hiding your face from me? When will you show yourself to me again? Where have you gone? It's not uncommon for us. Maybe we suffer a loss, loss of a job or a financial setback or the loss of a child, the loss of a husband. And in those times we say, God, like, I, I just don't, I don't sense that you're here. I feel like I'm alone. Where are you now? Where have you gone? Again, it's not, it's not really even, a, those aren't sinful questions to ask necessarily. They can be, I guess, if we, we never take note of God's presence, we never believe in His sovereign activity. But these are fairly normal questions that accompany life on this uneven planet. But the beautiful news that John's gospel makes clear over and over again with very specific language is that in Christ, God is always with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. For those who are in Christ, those who have received Jesus by faith, He promises His eternal presence. He promises to to walk with us. He promises to to care for us. He identifies with us in our suffering. So when we cry out to Jesus, we're not calling out to someone who doesn't know what it's like to be abandoned, who doesn't know what it's like to be weak, who doesn't know what it's like to suffer. He knows. He knows what it's like. He can identify with us. He promises to be there to pray for us in our suffering, to intercede for us to the Father. Peter uh, Uda is an attorney in New Jersey whose real passion is theology. And he's a gifted intellect and represents those who have been hurt because of injustice. And, but he's a real distributor of grace. And Uda writes this, God shows up when we're in trouble, which means he's always with us because we're always in trouble. And that's true, isn't it? I mean, think about the disciples. Now, the disciples were in trouble. They were out on a sea. They couldn't make any progress. They were worn out. They were exhausted. They were afraid for their lives. But this wasn't the first time they had doubted. It wasn't the first time that they had worried or lacked faith. It seemed to be their normal MO. They're doubting Jesus. They see him perform a miracle, and they still, they don't really get it. They're with Jesus, and they, they just pepper him with question after question. They seem to be regularly doubting, regularly worried But Jesus just keeps moving toward them. He keeps, in the words of John, coming near them. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't say, you know what? I've had enough. Enough with your doubting. Enough with your worrying. I've had all I can take. He keeps coming toward them. In fact, he even walks across a raging sea in order to be with them and to comfort them and to reassure them of his love for them. A Dutch theologian, Herman Ritterboss, who died just a few years ago at the age of 99, he wrote this, This should convince the disciples that in virtue of the glory given him by God, no darkness was too deep, waves too high, no sea too wide for him to find them and be with them in the midst of their turmoil. And the same is absolutely true for us. We're no less fickle, no less doubting, no less unreliable than the disciples. We're always in trouble too, spiritually speaking. We have the constant pressure to perform, 
to show that we're good enough, to show that we're worth being loved. We're tempted everywhere we turn. We're selfish, fearful, worried about what's next. We're lawbreakers by nature. So as soon as someone tells us what to do, specifically, we, we instantly bristle at that. When we do something good, finally our motives are stained with self-interest. We sin in the things we love. We sin in the things we fear. We sin in the things we desire. And yet, Jesus doesn't say, you know what? I've had enough. This is like the thousandth time you've come to me over this one specific sin. This is enough. I'm done with you. He keeps advancing. He keeps moving toward us. He keeps approaching us. In fact, even now, he's here with us. Sometimes we talk about Jesus and, as if he's not here. He's not with us. He's here even with us now. The presence of the risen Christ. He's with us. He, he delights in displaying his power in our lives. When I was in seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I would go to class all day while Janine would watch our two boys. They were three, three years old and about two months. And uh, she would watch the kids while I would study Hebrew and Greek and go to seminary. And then I would come home and then she would go to work. She'd leave for work about 6.30 p.m. and work until 7 a.m. And so it was my responsibility, obviously, naturally, to look after our two boys and to put them down to get them to go to sleep. And, you know, when you have a, a child who's under three and one who's just two or three months old, this is a challenge, as you know. It's hard to get the kids to go to sleep. And so I would try everything imaginable. I would, I would put my oldest down again, just a little under three. I would put him down, and then I would cover him up with a blanket, and I would kiss his forehead, and I would very quietly, as quietly as possible, I would kind of tiptoe out of the room, and as soon as I shut the door, he would pop up, grab hold of the crib, start jumping and yelling. I would go and I would do this, it seemed like a thousand times. But I also had another one who was two months old, and he would just cry and scream constantly. I'm always trying to think, okay, I'm trying to think what can I do? So I'm rocking one, I'm holding one down. I'm doing everything I can to get these kids, these boys to go to sleep. I found out with, with my youngest one, if I would take him in my arm and I would put, and I would let some running water, just warm water, and I would just let it wash over the top of his head, and I was running, running over his head, he would, he would go to sleep. But as soon as I turned the water off, he would stop, start screaming again. And it was so frustrating. I was trying to figure out what to do. And then I realized something that would actually make them stop, at least for a while. I would, I would take them in my arms. And I would sing to them this old hymn, I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In, I, was, I was singing really for myself, but I, I, in my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. And they would, they would quit crying. Now, maybe it was they're willing to do anything to get this guy to stop singing. But they would be quiet for a little bit. And this is actually one of the greatest truths that we can ever cling to. Jesus ever loves and cares for his own. His love never wavers despite our disobedience. His love for his own is always reliable. And he never sort of gives us the stiff arm. He never says, that's it, enough is enough. He's always pursuing. And no trial is too great, no burden too heavy, no sea too wide 
for him to reach us. So whatever you're going through this morning, of course, I don't know the stories or the struggles of every person in here, but whatever you're going through, maybe you've been abandoned by someone that said they loved you. Maybe, maybe your friends have turned their backs on you. Maybe you feel like you're alone. Even when you're around 100 people, you feel like you're still alone. Nobody really gets you. Nobody's really there for you. Maybe the last month, the last six months have been very trying for you. And, and as you look, you see that there doesn't appear to be any end in sight. No relief for you. Well, you can trust this morning that in Jesus you have a Savior who knows you. He knows everything about you. Who still loves you. And who is constantly pursuing you. Constantly making his way toward you. Now look at what Jesus says in verse 20 again. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Literally, Jesus says, ego eimi in the Greek, or I am. Now, it's difficult to know here if Jesus is, is using the divine name, I am, in a way to hearken back to the Old Testament and the book of Exodus, or if he's just simply using a, a very typical greeting. And frankly, scholars are kind of divided on this. Um, th those same Greek words were also a normal way of sort of self-identification as if to say, no, it's I, you know, I I'm here, it is I. And it seems like most biblical scholars believe that, that Jesus used this phrase in a typical way. Now, there are, there are times in John's Gospels, actually seven times to be exact, where Jesus uses the same words, ego, me, and they appear in a different grammatical way, a different contextual way. For example, we'll see one in just a couple of weeks when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. But here, you know, I, I think Jesus is probably just using a, a typical greeting. He's letting the disciples know who he is, who's approaching them by walking on the lake. And the disciples were told in verse 20, um, verse 20 says, they were glad to take him into the boat. Now, this would be easy for us to really gloss over, wouldn't it? But this is not John just making a simple statement here. Seems like just a simple statement. They were glad to take him in. Actually, what he's doing is, when you consider where the placement of this in his gospel and all the stuff that has preceded, John is actually contrasting the disciples' response to Jesus and the response of the religious leaders of his day. Literally, the disciples willingly received him. But the response of the religious leaders of Jesus' day they rejected him. In fact, Jesus says this about them in John 5. He says, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. This is the response of those who want to figure things out on their own. This is the response of those who have been duped by the delusion of independence. The religious leaders didn't gladly welcome Jesus. They didn't willingly receive Jesus. As we've seen over and over in John's gospel, they actually hated Jesus. In fact, they hated Jesus so badly that they tried to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus early on in his ministry. They despised Jesus. Why? Because he upset their religious system. He came preaching a salvation by grace through faith and not works, and they wanted to kill him because of it. See, they were convinced that they could be good enough on their own to save themselves, good enough to earn God's favor, to secure God's Love. But what they didn't realize, even though Jesus reiterated this very explicitly over and over again, was that God doesn't grade on a curve. He's not simply satisfied with being good 
or being nice. He's not even satisfied with moral improvement. What God demands is perfection. Complete and absolute perfection from every one of us. Total obedience in every single way. Not just in what we do, but in what we think. Not just in what we say, but in what we love. God demands complete and total perfection. In fact, Jesus himself said this in Matthew 5. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must be perfect, as God is perfect. And if we're honest with ourselves, who in this room would say, I'm perfect. I've perfectly obeyed every one of God's commands. We know that we're far from perfect. We also know, again, if we're really going to be honest with ourselves, we don't even have the ability to be perfect. But Jesus Christ was perfect for us. He shouldered the penalty for our sin on the cross when he died for us. He was raised to new life so that we could be free, declared righteous before God. By faith, he satisfied all of God's just commands. In other words, he obeyed every single command in word, deed, thought, motive, so that by believing in him, we could be considered perfect by God, counted righteous by God. What God offers every person, even this morning, is a clean slate, total forgiveness, the opportunity to be reconciled to this creator, the one who made us. And not just that, the power of God to love differently, to worship, to live differently, a hope for an eternal future. But all this begins with receiving Jesus willingly. Now here's our second point as it relates to the way we come to Jesus. Receiving Jesus gladly means first despairing of our own ability to save ourselves and then clinging to Him for rescue. See, we're never going to come to Jesus until we first realize we actually need a Savior. We're never going to trust in the righteousness of Christ until we first realize that we have no righteousness in ourselves by which we should approach God. So receiving Jesus gladly first means despairing of our own ability. This is the fundamental realization of every Christ follower. I cannot save myself. I need a Redeemer. My goodness will never be enough to satisfy a holy God. Have you come to that place in your own life by the work of God's Spirit where you actually despair of your own goodness? In other words, you realize so acutely, it's, it's so, you're so aware of this reality that there's nothing good in you by which you should be received by God. You can't work your way into God's kingdom. Have you become persuaded by the work of the Spirit that you're, you're broken and sinful and cannot be good enough? You cannot be nice enough to secure God's favor? There's a comedian by the name of Norm MacDonald. You've probably heard of him. He's, he was a longtime member of Saturday Night Live. He's an actor, writer, and so on. I'm not a huge fan of his. I've seen some of his stuff, and some of it's kind of funny, and some of it's a little crass, but... I am fascinated by his sort of, his uh, existential wrangling, if you will. It's sort of, he's been on this path for a long time trying to figure out life. And he said, 
he admitted in, a, in an interview recently with a, another comedian by the name of Mark Murrin, he said, you know, I'm actually terrified by the thought of death. He said, I think about it all the time. I think about death constantly. I, I, in Southern California, we were part of, ch- of a church, of course, being close to Hollywood and so on, where we had, there were two, I had two friends who were professional uh, comedians. That's what they did for a living. One had his own show in Vegas, and one was a guy who traveled around uh, all over the world, uh, you know, with doing his stand-up and so on. And, and, and what one of them said to me one time was that sort of the equation for comedy is, it's, it goes like this, pain plus time equals comedy. And I think that's, I mean, you see there's a lot of people who are constantly trying to be funny. There's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of internal scuff, stuff going on, and Norm MacDonald admitted in this interview that he, he can't stop ruminating over death. And motivated by the fear of death, MacDonald has gone on a number of sort of quests for truth. And in this interview, he said this, I have a rabbi who I talk to a lot. He's a real scholar. My pastor doesn't know anything. I mean anything. He's just a pleasant guy. His sermons always like how to be a nice fellow or some nonsense. Now, I hope that's not how you describe me when you go home on Sunday. My pastor doesn't know anything. But I will say this. If I got up here every Sunday and I just told you about how to be nicer, and if you were only nicer, then God would be pleased with you, and I gave you the five secrets or the seven steps or the eight paths or the nine treasures or whatever it is to becoming a better person that God will finally accept, you should go home and say those things about me because I wouldn't know anything. See, the the, the message of Christianity is not that if we're just nicer, if we just do a little bit better today than yesterday, then God will receive us. This is not the message of the Christian faith. It's not about good people becoming better or nice people becoming nicer. It's about hopeless rebels, self-centered people separated from God at birth, being captured by God's amazing love, being brought into a restored relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ, by believing in His obedience and cross work and thereby given new life, thereby forgiven. See, the glory of Christianity is not that Jesus came to bring a a personal improvement plan. Not a new way to live, but a new life. Given to us, not earned. As Jesus made it clear in His exchange with Nicodemus a few chapters back, what we need is not a new religion. We don't need more religion. We don't need new rules to live by. What we need is to be made alive. We need to be born again from above, which is what happens to every single person who receives Jesus willingly, who despairs of his or her own goodness and cries out to Jesus in saving faith, saying, I can't do this anymore. I know I can't do this. I know I have no hope of saving myself. I am apart from you, God, and I want to be made right with you. I want to be made your very son or daughter, and I'm trusting in Jesus. This is what happens to those who receive Jesus willingly. There are only two ways to receive Jesus. Two ways to respond to Jesus in self-righteous independence, the way the religious leaders did, which leads, by the way, to death, or in humble faith, which leads to safety. Now look at the last part of verse 21. This is fascinating and pretty hard to understand, really. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. 
Now, what in the world does that mean? Does it mean that they were teleported back to land? You know, Jesus got in the boat, and then all of a sudden, they're just right on the, they're on the shore again? They were three or four miles into the sea when Jesus caught up with them. They still had a couple miles left to go to get to shore. Does it mean that they just sort of were instantly, miraculously on dry land? Well, it could mean that. In other words, God can do that very easily if he wanted to. God can take a boat from the middle of the sea and put it on dry land miraculously. He can do that easily. It's nothing for him. So it could be that. But if that were the case, it's strange that neither of the other gospel writers made mention of this when they recorded the account of Jesus walking on water. Uh, The other two gospel writers who record this, they say nothing of that. They just say when Jesus got in the boat, the winds ceased, the the storm stopped. Seems like if they were actually teleported, they would make note of that. And I, I think the answer really lies, and to understand this lies in the word immediately. The Greek word immediately can mean right away in the sense of time and space. Or it can mean straight away, as in without obstacle or distraction. One old-time biblical linguist says this, All that is meant seems to be that as the storm was suddenly calmed, so the little boat propelled by the secret power of the Lord of nature, now sailing in it, glided through the now unruffled waters, and while they were wrapped in wonder at what had happened, not heeding their rapid motion, the boat was found to be at port, to their still further surprise. Could Jesus have teleported the boat back to shore? Absolutely. Absolutely. After all, he walked on water to get there. He could have done that. But I think what John wants us to see is that Jesus carried them all the way to shore through no effort or strategy of their own. And it was such a powerful thing that they just didn't even notice the the, the way that Jesus uh, circumvented the way, the way he calmed everything and brought them safely home. This, by the way, is a metaphor for our salvation. Here's our final point this morning. Salvation starts continues and ends in complete dependence on the Savior who carries home those he rescues. Now, this is such an important point because I think one of the most destructive messages we see in the church, and we hear it all the time from pulpits all across America, and that is that salvation begins with God. He's the one who converts. He's the one who justifies us. But after that, The burden is on us to make it home. Yeah, God saves. Yes, salvation is by faith and through grace and so on. But even though our conversion is admittedly about Jesus and what he's done, the rest of the story then is about us. How we perform, the sins that we commit, the sins we avoid, how well we're doing. So that the Christian life is really about, it becomes about our devotion to him. Our faithfulness. Our efforts. God starts the whole process, but we're the ones who have to finish it. The late pastor, Jerry Bridges, who made it his sort of life motto in his last sort of 25 years to to preach grace to people, he once wrote this. We are saved by grace, but we live by the sweat of our performance. We're always challenging ourselves and one another to try harder. We seem to believe success in the Christian life is basically up to us our commitment, our discipline, our zeal, with some help from God along the way. 
The realization that my daily relationship with God is actually based on the infinite merit of Christ instead of my own performance is, very, is a very freeing and joyous experience, but is not to be a one-time experience. The truth needs to be reaffirmed daily. Now, why is this such a well-kept secret, he says? The core issue is that we don't believe we're still spiritually bankrupt. Having come into God's kingdom by grace alone, solely on the merit of another, we're now trying to pay our own way by our performance. We declared only temporary bankruptcy. We're now trying to live by good works rather than by grace. Now, of course, are we called to do good works? Yes, we're called to do good works. Are we commanded to do things in the Scriptures? Absolutely. But as soon as we revert, and it's so easy to do, in fact, it's natural for, for us to do, as who, those who are hardwired with the law, as soon as we revert back to this, if I obey right, if I keep the commandments, if I do well, God loves me and I'll make it until the end, but as soon as I disobey and I have a bad day, God no longer loves me. We're living under law, not living under grace. And what happens is, even though we think that sounds more spiritual, to constantly be worried about how we're doing, what happens is soon Jesus gets squeezed out of the picture. And all we're focusing on is our improvement, our performance, our obedience, our ups and our downs, and no longer are we living by faith. And I think this is the point of the brief miracle story that we're looking at this morning. It's, it's, if we are to be reconciled to God, if we are to make it into heaven, if we are to to survive to the end, spiritually speaking, it will only be because Jesus Christ and His gracious power carries us all the way home. And this is what He promises to do for all those who are in Him. He will finish what He starts. Now, how do we apply this? Let me close by reading an email exchange I had with a guy recently. And I read this with permission. Here's what he wrote to me. and you, This won't be on the screens behind me. He wrote to me in frustration, my emotions have run the full course. I've experienced everything from panic to sorrow, anger, frustration. He says, he said, John, I am so undone by my own sinfulness. I cannot put it into words. I think about the subpar service and worship that I give God every week, week after week. I think about my lack of concern for the lost. I think about all the wasted time and how I, and I wonder how a holy God could possibly keep me around. And then he said, yet. This is after, by the way, years of gospel-centered preaching. Yet, for the very first time, I have truly come to grips with my own sinfulness and the massive grace and mercy that God shows me every single day and here's how I replied to him. I said, your sin is indeed great, and so is mine. But far greater is God's grace. Praise God that he's enabled you to see your own sinfulness and the sufficiency of Christ's work on your behalf. This is a gift from God's Spirit. God loves you, and that will never change. And he loves you not because you forced him into your life through your obedience, but because he brought you into his family at a very high price, the blood of his son. What this means is even though you haven't arrived, and who of us has? Even though you still sin, your standing with God is not based on your performance. He is delighted in you as a son. All because of Christ and the sinless life he lived in your place. 
Now, let me say this to you. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, God has spoken his approval over you in Jesus. You belong to him. You are positionally righteous. You don't have to do anything to save yourself. You can't anyway. And in the same way that he justified you, that has declared you not guilty of all your sins, he will also sanctify you. He will also keep you till the end. He will carry you home to shore, so to speak, because of his faithfulness. And it's that realization, by the way, and I know this is paradoxical. I know we, we want to react to it, but it's that realization, the completeness of your salvation in Jesus Christ, and it's all because of him that will actually spur you on toward love and good deeds. It'll, it'll actually uh, spur on your spiritual growth. More than a thousand self-inflicted lashings, more than a thousand times of beating yourself up over and over over the sins. So I say this, and this is what I said to, to this guy. Praise God for His grace. See His grace in your life every day. Walk in freedom. Focus less on your failures and more on Christ's faithfulness. Strive for holiness knowing that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. Your status with God this morning, if you are in Christ, is secure. He will come to you. He will be there with you in your storm. And He will make sure that you make it to shore because he is a faithful Savior.